Y'all ready? Are we all ready? Let's minimize the window, so if you nod, I can't see you. All ready. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. Thanks for stopping by our table of disappointment. This is How They Got Away, the show where we discuss the unsatisfying ending to your favorite unsolved or unpunished true crime and corporate greed stories. I'm your host today, Kelsey, with my co-host, Annalise, and our just one guest today, Anna, hello everybody, I'm back. We traded them out. <laughs> we trade them out. You know, like Pokemon cards. <laughs> Anna, I choose you. I'm gonna go sit in a corner now. Hello everybody, it's me. Hello everybody, it's me, Markiplier. We're gonna play Five Nights at Freddy's. Just kidding. Um, That's besides their point. <laughs> Today I have for you one of those stories that makes you double and triple. Tri tri oh god. I, I actually did vocal exercises before this, hoping it would stop me from fucking upwards, but I guess not enough. Never. Never <clears throat> enough. Never enough. Today, I have for you one of those stories that makes you double and triple check your locks at night, so I hope you guys are not home alone while I'm, we're recording. <laughs> I already do that, so don't worry about me, babe. <laughs> That's so ominous. Oh my god. Mm, I think just about everybody worries about home invasions. To one degree or another. Annalise, I know you think about it a lot. To a severe extent. <laughs> I remember one night my humidifier made a weird noise while I was laying in bed and became convinced there was someone in my room just waiting for me to notice them because, of course, they won't attack until you notice them. So I was covering my head with the covers and eventually I worked up the courage to open my eyes only to realize there was no one there. This would not be the case for one family in Tallahassee, and this is their story. This is the unsolved murder of the Sims family. And before we get into this, there are points in the story where different sources say different things. It is a 60-year-old case. The media kind of went to town on this, so I've done my best to find the accurate facts, but in some places, I'm just going to have to tell you the different things I found. It was really hard to corroborate. There may be even more differing information I didn't find, so know that going in that there's a lot of opinions, facts being opinions kind of thing in this case, which is part of why it's unsolved, because it's just so messy. I love how we have two cases in a row, because we just filmed the one for Aquatifana that I did, which was also, like, it's super old, so there's there's no concrete, like storyline we're going from one like it could have been these five things to another case where it could have been these five things i didn't plan that either but here we are silly little choose your own adventure but not really that's what happens when you cover unsolved cases is that there's a reason that they're unsolved and it's usually because we don't have all the facts An important factor in this case is that it took place in 1966. You're probably going to hear me say, but because it was the 60s, a few different times. But because it was the 60s. As the golden age of suburbia began to end, the Civil Rights Act had been signed two years ago, and black families had started to benefit from the changing social dynamic, especially in the South. Some so much so that they began to move into the suburbs themselves, which of course scared the white, well-to-do neighbors. 
A narrative began to emerge that black people moving from the city would bring city crime with them. This case happened right in the middle of those fears and solidified in the minds of many that the suburbs were no longer safe. So, the year is 1966. Lyndon B. Johnson is president. Poodle skirts and hair jail are in. <laughs> That is my best attempt at a transatlantic accent. I really like the sudden Lyndon B. Johnson is some, is now president where everyone's going to have a fashion statement. Everyone is in poodle skirts. I repeat, everyone is in poodle skirts. <laughs> it's mandatory. Everyone. Everyone. And of course, football is the sport. Thus, on Saturday night of October 22nd, most of the population of Tallahassee was attending a football game at the North Florida Fair. At the time, events like these were known to literally leave streets vacant. As Tallahassee was a small town then, and TV had maybe four channels, there's not really much else to do. You gotta go entertain yourself. Mm -hmm. The Sims were the perfect nuclear family living in suburbia. It was said they were good people. Dr. Robert Sims, aged 42, was an information technology expert with the, bleh, with the Department of Education. Helen Sims, his wife, 34, was a Sunday school teacher and the secretary at the church they attended, which was apparently a very coveted, coveted position. They had three daughters, Norma Jeanette, 17, Judith Ann, 15, and Joy, who was only 12 at the time of these events. Their home on Muriel Court Drive backed up onto some woods that neighborhood children would often play in. Understandable. As many of us who grew up near woods and played in woods. <laughs> mm -hmm. The two older children were out of the house. Judith Ann was babysitting. Some sources say Norma Jeanette was also babysitting, while others say she was at the football game. But regardless, Robert, Helen, and Joy had decided to stay in for the night. On the fateful night of October 22nd, 1966, Norma returned home to find the TV on, but her family was nowhere in sight. After searching the house, she found her family in the master bedroom, all bound and gagged. Robert and Helen were also blindfolded. I couldn't find information about whether Joy was blindfolded as well. Most sources put Robert lying face down on the bedspread, though I also found some sources stating he was tied to a chair. Helen and Joy were lying on the floor. It would later be determined that their wounds were inflicted by a blade and a 38 caliber pistol. I'm going to describe those injuries here. It's kind of heavy, so trigger warning for the next 30 or so seconds. Robert had been shot once in the head. Helen had been shot twice in the head, and some sources claim once in the leg. Joy received the worst of the injuries, having been shot in the head once and stabbed six or seven times in the abdomen. The most violence clearly being reserved for Joy, who again was only 12 years old, possibly indicating she was the target for some reason or another. It's really sad because when you were like describing these things, I was thinking in my head that, oh, like the youngest girl is going to have the worst of it. it. It's like always, it's so sad that that is almost always the case. God, that's so sad. What the? 12 years old? They really out here like, I have some beef with a 12 year old. Not really. I'm just trying to make light of things because this is a lot for me since I've been gone for like a good while. But I'm just like, damn. Uh, oh. Hmm. I know we were just saying before this, 
that this is Anna's biggest like true crime outlet and we're just sitting here like on a random Saturday she was stabbed and shot and Anna's just like oh me coming back like ha oh boy Mm -hmm. what's really sad is that these young young women and like girls in particular they get targeted for other nefarious acts and then end up struggling and other things happen to them Mm -hmm. or they're just purely the target of someone's fascination which is horrific it's kind of sad that you say that because early reporting on the crime would conflict about the state of joy's body some would report that her pants and underwear were pulled down and her nightgown was pulled up which may indicate some kind of sexual assault these those on the scene would state that this was not true and that the media had made this up However, there were bloody handprints on the inside of her thighs, on the, like, pants, of her, the thighs of her pants, which, oh, God. I could not find evidence if they, I couldn't find that if they found any real evidence of sexual assault outside of the possibility that her clothes are in disarray, and even that is in contention, so I cannot speak one way or the other on that. And it's not surprising that media would, also just assume that too i think a lot of people would like i myself make that assumption Mm -hmm. most often when we hear about a young woman in a case and even i mean unfortunately a lot of young boys in that case as well yeah especially with our current social climate i mean to be fair i wouldn't say current but like this has been going on for a little too long and it's not great What's crazy about this story is that when Norma Jeanette came home to find her family in this state, Robert and Helen were still alive. Oh, God. Oh, no. So she called the local funeral home at around 11.20 p.m. for help. She called the funeral home for help? Who else was she supposed to call, Annalise? Does she not trust the police? (laughs) Because that would... Well, how would she call the police, Annalise? Oh, okay. No, no, no. What I was getting at was actually that 911 would not be established until 1968. But they didn't have a phone line for the police department at her. Because, I mean, today all police departments have a telephone. What did they not back then? Yes. But the thing is, she wasn't thinking about the police. She was thinking about the fact that two of her family members were still alive and needed medical attention. Apparently, in Tallahassee at least, you called the funeral home for all your dead or dying, I guess. So the funeral home doubled as an ambulance service. Interesting. That makes more sense why she would call them if it was for medical attention first. It just seemed a little odd that you wouldn't also call the police if you... Because I would assume that they would have a telephone of some sort, but maybe, you know, first priority and then. I don't, you know, I'm, she's 17. She comes home. Her family sure. is tied up and two of them are still alive. I'm not even sure if she thought that far ahead, which is part of the reason we have 911 now is that you can call one number and get all the services that you need. Yeah, you'd have to think of a lot more numbers than that if you were trying to remember your local police station number, which would be difficult. And also, she had other priorities of her, at that point, living and in very much pain, at that point, family members. So, funeral home owner Russell Bevis and his 16-year-old son were first on the scene. I don't know why he thought this would be a good father-son activity, but okay. Well, yeah... 
if he was working there at the time, too, it would make sense. Family business. You gotta start young. There's an argument to be made that maybe the father didn't understand the extent of how bad this scene was. Because when they would get there, the father, the 16-year-old son would eventually come to take over the funeral home. And they have, he's been interviewed in this case for many years since. He said he talks about the fear that his father like exhibited at this scene. If this is small town Tallahassee, this had not happened before. So there was a lot of like they didn't even know what to expect. They had no idea what to do with a scene like this. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. In an attempt to render aid, they tried to at least loosen the bindings on the family members. And in this situation, you kind of have to. Because Coming into this, you were told at least two family members are still alive. Saving their lives takes priority over preserving the crime scene. Right. But that's kind of unfortunate that, you know, it's one of those no-win situations where you kind of have to. Mm-hmm. However, Robert apparently died before help could arrive, which is interesting because that means Norma said he was alive mm. when she made the call for help. I don't know if she knew to check for a pulse or if he was visibly still alive before dying in front of his daughter, or maybe he was dying as help came in. I'm not sure. I mean, a lot can change with those kind of injuries very fast, so it could be that call and then... That's true. Helen was rushed to the hospital and put on a ventilator, and the entire community was hoping she would wake up, not only because she had two daughters who just lost their father and sister but so she could tell the police who had done this. Helen would die nine days later on Halloween, and the community was so freaked out by the monster who did this still being on the loose that they actually banned Halloween in Tallahassee that year. That is understandable. Yeah, I don't I don't blame them. That's so sad and scary. I don't, like, maybe in a small town you could pull something like that off, even today, but, mm. you know, in a city I couldn't really see them doing that. But also, like, crime is just so much more common nowadays, and especially in bigger cities. Hard to say. So the investigation may or may not have gotten a little screwed over right at the beginning. Many neighbors claim that they came to the house after hearing the news, and some sources claim nearly a thousand people came in and out of the crime scene that night, people having coffee and smoking cigarettes in the house. That is very JonBenet Ramsey as well. It is, but it's also a little hard to corroborate whether or not that is true, because some sources claim that, some sources say that didn't happen. There's a lot of he said, she said in this case. For sure. Understandable. Leon County Sheriff Larry Campbell would be in charge of this case, and crazy detail, this all happened on the night of his 24th birthday. Happy birthday, Larry. A family is dead. 24? Uh, could you imagine? Huh. <laughs> Happy birthday, Larry. You gotta look at this murdered family. Have fun. We don't know who it is. See you later. That's... Aww. I don't like that he's my age. I don't like it. The fact that two-thirds of the family members were discovered with fatal wounds but still alive tells me that the attack happened very close to the time Norma came home. Some sources also point to half-finished cups of coffee and the ashtray being full on the table as evidence that the attack occurred shortly before Norma returned. I think the idea being that they would have cleaned those things up if they'd gone to bed. Or maybe the coffee was warm, I'm not sure. 
This was corroborated by a neighbor who reported hearing screams around 10.45 p.m. Apparently, since kids were known to play in the area, they didn't really think of anything of it at the time, which, okay, I feel like I could tell the difference between a child scream and an adult in pain scream, but, <sighs> you know, who's to say? I mean, you do try to rationalize things when you hear them. That's also true. Like, you don't immediately think, oh, I hear screams. My neighbors are getting murdered brutally in their home. It is not your first thought. Investigators' initial theory was that the attacker or attackers knew the family personally. There were no signs of a break-in, and despite there being little stacks of cash around the house in plain sight, nothing was taken. However, whoever attacked this family did not come prepared. The family was bound with pantyhose, stockings, socks, and ties, all from around the house, which kind of indicates that they didn't really plan out how they were going to control three family members. I couldn't find information regarding which family members they believe died first. This was also the 60s, so they may not have been able to determine that, and they likely died really close to each other. Or, I should say, which family members were attacked. But Robert receiving just a simple shot to the head when Helen and Joy received multiple injuries, although there are a couple sources that say Robert may have been shot twice. There is so many just like, well, maybe it was this or it could have been this kind of sources. But regardless, he does in most sources, he does seem to receive the least number of injuries, which may indicate that the attacker or attackers were trying to remove the biggest threat. Now, Dr. Sims was 260 pounds and over six feet. Not a small man. The assailant clearly had a gun and was probably threatening the other members of the family, but three people is a lot for one person to control. It was also said that the bloody handprints on Joy's pants were small, possibly from a woman, which gives more credence to a multiple assailant theory. I got a lot of information from a fellow true crime podcast, Red Handed, who did an episode on this case. Definitely go check them out if you want to hear more on this case. And according to them, in that the investigation found blood in the sink pipe of the master bathroom. This may indicate an attempt at cleanup by the killer, though clearly not of the scene, but perhaps of their person, like washing their hands or trying to get blood off their clothes so when they left the house, they wouldn't be covered in blood and hella suspicious. They also mentioned that the seed of a plant that grew in the forest behind the house was found inside the house. This may mean that the killer hid in the forest behind the house before coming in. Or it could mean one of the many kids who played in the forest and visited the home carried it in. It could mean something or it could mean totally nothing. Yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, that is a seed that could travel in on anyone that comes to the house. If they're that close to the forest, they might just go for a walk. Could have just come in through the wind from the wind through a window. Like, could mean nothing. Now, this is 1966, and forensic science is still in its infancy. DNA was still 20 years out, so there wasn't much investigators could get from the crime scene. They did have some fingerprints from the scene, but they needed a suspect to compare them to. And since most of the town was at the fairgrounds, other than the neighbors who heard screams, there really were no witnesses. They even dredged the pond behind the Sims' home looking for the murder weapon, a thirty-eight caliber rifle. 
but found nothing. To this day, they still have not found the murder weapon. Which I guess a lot of things could have happened. Again, it was the 60s. So a lot of things could have happened to that murder weapon. It also would probably be... And it's Tallahassee, Florida. You can dump that gun yeah. in any Bodies one of a million swamps and it's kind things. of gone. Mm-hmm. They had so little to go on. In fact, at one point, police started tracking down anyone who had borrowed the local library's copy of In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It's C-A-P-O-T-E. I'm not sure if that's Capote or Capote. I'm going with Capote. The theory being that the book, which details a murder of a family who are shot in their home, acted as inspiration for the murder. The plot is kind of similar to the Sins murders, I guess, in that they're both families that got shot in their home, but that's really not much. And obviously liking murder mysteries does not make you a murderer. Yeah, that's nothing that you could, like, arrest someone on. That is grasp. I mean, they are grasping at straws. They're doing whatever they can. They're grasping. They have nothing. Now, police may have not been making much progress, but the rumor mill certainly was. There are several theories about who could have been responsible. I will share the more popular ones with you now. But know that literally all of these are based solely on hearsay, circumstantial evidence, and biased accounts. Small town gossip. Hot gossip. Now, as mentioned earlier, Helen worked as the church secretary before her death. But she'd actually quit just a few days before her murder. Now, apparently, the pastor at the church, C.A. Roberts, was known to be a, quote, ladies' man around town. And thus a rumor began to spread that Helen knew too much about Robert's extramarital activities and that he'd killed the Sims family in order to keep her, her from ruining his reputation. That feels like a very classic, like, motive and story for, like, a murder, if you know what I mean. Like, that feels like something you would read in some kind of, like, true crime novel that comes off a bookshelf sh way back in the library that's, like not super new or anything is kind of old but you're like eh, i might as well it wraps it up in a nice neat little bow it's a perfect rumor it explains everything and tidies it up and he won't go after anybody else so we have an answer to our monster mm -hmm. he was named as an official suspect at one point and according to a documentary i found on this case it's linked in the cold case file which is amongst the sources of this episode very good documentary go check it out uh they apparently blacklit his office i do not know why i don't know if they what they thought they were going to find but apparently they found a lot of evidence of his extramarital activities in there hello so that would explain why maybe helen quit is that she didn't want to be near that I personally think that this was a rumor that made it into the documentary just because time has made the rumor fact. I cannot think of a reason they would do this. That seems like a sordid detail kind of thing that rumor mills come up with. Yeah, the blacklight thing feels very like kids on a playground. Like, oh, well, I heard from my mom when she was talking to Cheryl's mom that da 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 da. Exactly. 
my mommy knows this and my mommy's always right so therefore she is correct oh what are my sources my mom <laughs> my source is my mom it could have happened it's possible but like i don't know like i can't see why that would have have happened like what would they have gained from that his alibi was that he was at the Florida State football game that night at the North Florida Fair. He was the team chaplain because this was the 60s and they had chaplains for teams. <clears throat> there is even video footage of him at the game confirming that he was there. But he sort of disappeared over halftime, so some believe he could have snuck away during this time. Those who have seen the video even... Not everyone, but some who have seen this video even claim he was in a different set of clothes in the footage of the second half of the game than the first. But as the video is in black and white, he is in reference clothes, which are black and white. It was the 60s, and most of the footage is of his back. It's really hard to say. Yeah, and half times are not that long. He would have to get that done so fast in order to run there come back i don't see that being a plausible timeline i've seen the video and honestly i think he's in the same outfit but most of the footage is of his back and all the other above mentioned qual you know in terms of quality so who's to say however police tried every route in different traffic conditions to and from the sims home starting at the fairgrounds and said it would have been impossible he could not have made it there in time murdered them, and come back. Couldn't have happened. According to some, there were followers of his that were so besotted with him that they may have killed someone if he asked them to. So even though he had an alibi, there were people who still believed he had something to do with it, that he told his, some of his followers to do it. Mm. It makes it sound like he has his, like, own little cult and that is terrifying that's exactly how it was described in the documentary people who lived in the town at the time spoke of how some people would go to morning and afternoon services just to hear this man preach like it's possible some people just were kind of culty around this guy i mean by followers it could just be a bunch of women that he has screwed around town because you did mention a lady's hand so i go hmm here are my simps please go kill this family thanks and they're just like oh my god anything for you that's weird that's weird well here's what's crazy about that is that when he was officially brought in for questioning and word got out that he was bunches of women began to call the police station and say that they had nothing to do with the murder <laughs> because they were worried that they would be connected to him. So basically, all of his affair partners called the police station and were like, yeah, we're not great, but we didn't murder anybody. Oh my god. I don't know what was going on in Tallahassee, because we're going to get into more theories, and it's just, it does not paint a good picture of Tallahassee 1966. Especially of, like, just this, like, tiny suburban, like, block. Wild. But Tallahassee's not looking that great. Whoopsie-daisy. Despite him being cleared as an official suspect, the gossip around town about his involvement eventually got so bad, he ended up having to leave town entirely. But that may have been more about the fact that all of his affairs had been exposed at that point. Yeah, there's gotta be a lot of angry people there now. So, possible motive. Pretty solid alibi. 
unless he had a cult of followers kill the Sims for him. Another suspect who would come up in this case is Robert Howells. There are a lot of Roberts in this case. I can't do anything about that. I'm sorry. Howell 1, Howell 2. <laughs> no, it's, like, doc, it's Dr. Robert Sims, the murder victim, C.A. Roberts, the suspect, Robert Howells, suspect number two. Like, there are a lot of Roberts. It was a popular name, apparently. <laughs> There is only one Alpha Robert, and they took him out. According to his wife, Peggy Howells, the day after they married, they were in the car driving, I think, to a honeymoon, and Robert begins to tell Peggy in horrible graphic detail about how he'd murdered the Sims family. And according to Peggy's testimony, Howell told her that he'd killed Joy first, Mrs. Sims second, and Mr. Sims last. Dr. Sims, excuse me. Huh? Could you imagine? What the fuck, man? What? Can you imagine? Hello, partner of mine. <laughs> yeah, you just married this man. You're probably feeling pretty good about your life decisions at this point, and your husband just kind of turns to you in the car and goes, Hey, honey, let me tell you about this evening I had this one time. What? Hello, darling wife of mine. I'm going to tell you how I killed this entire family. First, I killed the baby, and then I killed the wife, and then I killed the father. I've killed all of them. I don't know why they're in New York now, but that's how it is. I... That's so weird. Could you imagine you're like, oh, tell me, tell me a secret about yourself, and they go, cool. So I've committed three murders. That's... Huh. This is like the whole... American flatbread thing all over again, which is like, I did it, everybody. <laughs> That's really cool. Somebody called the police. Get his ass. Now, because this is the 60s, Peggy was not the only wife who heard this confession from her husband. According to people uh. who lived in and around Tallahassee at the time, it wasn't uncommon for husbands to tell their wives that they had been the one to kill the Sims as a means of control. A, I killed them and I'll kill you too if you don't stay in line kind of thing. Ah! 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 <laughs> oh my god! The only response to that is Anna screaming. Are the straights, are the straights okay? Are they okay? <laughs> no! I was like, ha maybe this guy's just whack. Kelsey, actually, many husbands were like back back in the day, and they were like, I'll ki I killed them, and therefore you're next. What kind of... To having to hold my ass? Yeah, till death do us part. Literally. Huh? Oh, straight white men. Well, I shouldn't say white, but I also go... Mm. I go... Mm. Oh. We know all of this because in the 80s, someone found a letter written by Peggy that describes this. She also wrote a letter of Sabbath. Peggy also wrote that her ex-husband beat her regularly and threatened to kill her stepson several times. So he was not well in the brain. No. Police have been called more than once for domestic issues to their home, which at the time, as disgusting as it is, was a lot more acceptable than it is now. I mean, it's never acceptable, but you know what I mean. So the police, having been called several times for domestic violence, 
says something about the severity, I think. Yeah, 50-60s, there was high rates of domestic violence. Peggy was so convinced that Rob had something to do with this murder, though, that she agreed to wear a wire for the police to try and get a confession out of him. But this goes wrong. He gets tipped out by his daughter and doesn't give up anything. Oh, and that would not end well for Peggy. You know that. That is so sad. His daughter? So, police try to work the motive angle. What reason would Rob have to kill the Sims? Turns out not much. Rob claimed at one point he ran into Helen at the supermarket and said she'd done or said something to offend him. So he followed her home and then returned later to kill her. I think he claimed this to Peggy at one point. Why are men like this? I do think it is interesting that two of the main theories around the motive for murder revolve around Helen. I don't know if that's coincidence or not. Just something I noticed. Yeah, I also wonder this is I wonder I wonder if this is also a fear tactic on the part of the abusive husband to the wife. I think so. Because it's at this point that I start to wonder if Peggy mm. truly was in truly believes this man is involved in the murder, which in fairness, he's shown her enough violence to prove that he's more than capable, or if she wants to get him in jail to keep him away from her. Because she's out here doing the absolute most to get him arrested. Which, on the one hand, if you really believed that he was involved in this murder, you would. But you might also, if you had another motivation, like, he beats you all of the time and threatens to kill your stepson all the time. Because she then shows up to the police station with a thirty-two caliber rifle. I'm sorry, it is... A 32 caliber pistol, and minor correction, it was not a rifle. The murder weapon was a 38 caliber handgun. Just realized I made that mistake. She, which she believes was used in the murder. However, as we know, I just as I just said, the murders were committed with a 38. Robert Howells would fur- further be ruled out when he passed a polygraph and his fingerprints did not match those found at the scene. But fi- I don't know if fingerprint one, I mean, if we're going to go full throttle this theory fingerprints probably weren't super great back in the 60s and we know that polygraphs are not reliable but also i have a feeling that either this man had told peggy about these murders and that he did it as a way to control her and to make her fearful or she as you said before is also might be doing this to try and get away from him it could really be a mix of both it is. I feel really bad for Peggy whether or not Robert was involved because it sounds like she might have been really desperate to get away from this man, murder of the Sims or, or no. She was just obviously in a horrible situation. I have another suspect for you. Is his name also Robert? No, his name's not Robert. <laughs> it's not. Robert, number four. Okay, okay, so we got a cult leader an abusive husband, and what is this man? Tommy Fulgham, a 16-year-old at the time of the Sims murders, would be arrested in Alabama at 29 for the murder of his girlfriend. He Mm. would go on to, and trigger warning here, kill her, dismember her corpse, scattering the pieces around the apartment they'd lived in, put many of her organs in the bathtub, and was arrested while carrying her liver in a jar under his arm. It's a great guy. That is super great. Terrifying. 
The st straight men are not okay. Uh, so what I'm getting from right now is that straight men are not okay, and they all need therapy or something checked out. At least 60s wise. Uh, right now, yeah, everyone should get a little therapy. But oh my god, Tallahassee, what's wrong? What's wrong, baby? What's wrong? The detail of the liver, really. Like you were getting me before with the, but that is, oh my god. Oh my god, dude. Yeah, the dismemberment? Okay, whatever. Kelsey's like, hey guys, we're gonna spice these up and put everything in their little jars. And he had it right under his arm. And I'm like, the li- The liver? What the fuck? Upon his arrest, he told police that he had done this because he believed it would keep Satan chained for a thousand years and unable to affect those on Earth. He had apparently also told some friends around this what? time that he worried he was being possessed by the devil and also later told these friends that he believed he was the devil. And I know we didn't know as much as we do about mental illness back then, but I feel like those are some pretty big red flags and as those friends, they really should have told somebody about it. I mean, I doubt they ever thought their friend could do something like this, but, like, maybe a check-in. Yeah. Yeah, there's obviously something happening with his mental health that contributed. But, oh my god. He's clearly suffering, suffering from some sort of psychotic break. One source did say he was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, so that tracks. But we should also put a disclaimer that they did in the past just label a ton of people schizophrenic who were not and i don't want to just put a blatant everyone with schizophrenia is bad so that is true but there's clearly some kind of like delusions i believe he was hearing voices at one point so there's a little bit of credence to that but i'm not gonna sit here and diagnose that is what he was diagnosed with yeah. but that would have been in the 70s but what does this have to do with the Sims murders? Well, one journalist, Ronnie Stock, covering the Alabama murder, did a little research into this guy's background and made the connection that he lived two blocks south of the Sims home at the time their murders took place. That is awfully a little too close for my liking. There's a theory after this, too, that makes you truly wonder if perhaps there was something in the water in this particular block of suburbia because woo-nilly. Ronnie took this to state attorney Willie Meggs and further investigation would be done. Tommy was small for his age at the time, not very into sports, and by all accounts seemed like a very normal kid. Mental illnesses like schizophrenia and others do tend to drop in the late 20s to early 30s, so it's possible it just kind of started one day in his late 20s. What is interesting to note, however, is that when police were going door to door around the neighborhood asking questions about the murder, what had anybody seen, did you know the Sims family, etc., they get to Tommy's family's house. Tommy is nowhere to be found. It actually seemed like he was dodging police on purpose for one reason or another. But avoiding police or not, it seems that Tommy was at a party that night, and while that's not a rock-solid alibi, People do remember him being there. A small 16-year-old boy controlling three people, including two grown adults. Even with a gun, I don't think that's very likely. 
In addition to his size and his alibi, his prints did not match those at the scene. Neither of the surviving Sims daughters even knew who Tommy was, which goes against the theory that the Sims knew their killer as well. There's not a lot linking him to this except for the fact that he lived nearby. Yeah, he lived nearby and committed a gruesome murder later on, but I think that may have just been he had some kind of schizophrenic break later in life. I don't think that indicates anything about him at 16. In October 1987, 21 years after the murder, almost to the day, Sheriff Larry Campbell received a phone call from one Mary Charles LaJoy Fox. There had been an article in the newspaper for the anniversary of the crime, and something about this article made Mary feel like she needed to tell police what she knew. At the time of the murder, Mary Charles was living nearby the Sims home with her adoptive family, like three minutes walking away, who she claims was very abusive towards her. She was also apparently really weird, for the 60s at least. That's how she was described. Okay, so there's not much that needs to happen to be really weird in the 60s. <laughs> you are against my norms, and therefore you are weird, and I do not like you. You shall get arrested. Hold that thought. Okay. Nowadays, we might uh -oh. describe somebody like this as goth or, you know, some kind of witchy vibe. She was very fascinated with the funeral industry. And six, since this was the 60s, that kind of freaks some people out. But I told you to hold that thought. It does seem to go a little beyond the norm, though, as she had gone to one funeral home so many times that they had to ask her to stop. And she'd broken into another funeral home and stolen funeral shrouds, which are the cloths they put over the bodies after they've deceased. as like a kind of respect thing. So they're covered. Right out of the caskets, or is she just like, yeah, I know what these are, and just steals them? What? No, I think she took them from the morgue. Okay. okay. The, but huh. she has, at this point, even by today's standard, earned the title of a little weird. <laughs> a little <laughs> Never weird. Mind. Alternative people would not go that far. Oh, that's a, hmm. She said, oh, did that touch, like, Granny Sue? Mine now. She doesn't need it. But at the same time, it sounds like she was a very troubled teen, so it's hard to say if that's a red flag or if she's just emo. Her only friend at the time was Vernon Fox Jr. They became friends in elementary school and started a romantic relationship in their teens. Vernon's family was also pretty dysfunctional due to his father having had an affair, so I wonder if they bonded over their bad home lives. However, Vernon's parents didn't approve of Mary Charles, and Mary Charles's parents didn't approve of him. People who were living around the time would say that they both thought, both families thought the other kid was weird, and they kind of followed that up with a, and they were both kind of right. <laughs> Which is, okay, let the weirdos date, I guess. Another thing to note about the Fox family is that Dr. Fox, Vernon's father, was one of the leading criminologists in the country at this time. Okay, then. Vernon had done about four months in the Air Force before being discharged for mental health reasons. I couldn't find more details on what that meant, because this is... Uh, but, 
because this is the 60s, I have to imagine you're displaying some pretty big red flags to get discharged on the, counts, on the grounds of mental health. It's also important to that fact to know that v the Vietnam War was happening at this point. So they're looking for folks. The back corner of the Fox's property cuts the back of the Sims property. Remember, we've established that there was some forest behind the Sims house, so there's forest separating these two homes. Mm -hmm. But it's like they're across the block from each other. Like yep. in the, like the forest in between, got it. The LaJoy residence, where Mary Charles was living at the time, was just down the street from the Foxes. Around this time in the neighborhood, there were reports of peeping Tom activity, which would go down while Vernon was away at the airports and picked back up when he returned. Oh. And in fact, about a week before the murder, Vernon was apparently spotted peeping into Joy Sims' room. Okay, okay, so our suspects are now cult leader, abusive ex-husband, the, oh my god, liver in a jar man, and a peeping Tom. Oh my god, this is a quite the collection of characters that keeps getting weirder, and uh, this is not great. <laughs> no, this is not spicy at all. Well, it is spicy, but uh, not in a good way. This is like bad spice. Like when you eat those Korean fire noodles and you're just like, yeah, it'll be fine. And you eat too many and you're like, oh, it hurts. That's how I'm feeling. This right is, now. if this one is the one that is true, it. I don't know if I feel better thinking that maybe he was just scoping out the house to later murder the family and not just peeping on Joy specifically. I don't know if that makes me feel better or not. It's just a thought. But if we go with this theory that Joy may have been a target, particularly because of the excess of wounds, then if he was the person, that may have been him. I do want to know that the documentary on this case actually interviewed Vernon Fox Jr. And he denies being a prowler, as they described him in the documentary. And he denies specifically peeping on Joy. What's crazy about this whole theory is that this almost all comes from Mary Charles herself in 1987. There's video footage of her talking with police, saying that she thinks she might have killed Joy and her parents in order to keep from losing her only friend, Vernon. And the footage is creepy. She's laughing and cracking jokes with officers, all the while talking about how she might have been one of the people involved in The Sims murder. Okay, so instead of a peeping Tom for the last suspect, we have the girlfriend of a supposed peeping Tom instead. In this interview, she does a lot of, well, I might remember being in the house, or there's a chance I was there, giving the police just enough to keep the conversation going, but also not enough to get arrested. She never denied involvement in the murders. Like, Bessie, this is not the time to be coy. Yeah, this is some weird, like, not really gaslighting, but I don't know. It's just really weird. That's... This is like a call for attention kind of thing. I might have been there. I might have remembered. Go Shut the fuck up, Mary. Been. I think that was doing a lot of... She's trying to tell them stuff without getting arrested herself. And we'll get into a little bit more about why she might have done that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. 
People have also speculated that she may have been jealous of the Sims family as a whole. They were a nice, well-to-do family, and the parents were very kind to their children, and they seemed to have everything that she didn't have. So there's a bit of a narrative around jealousy being a possible motive for Mary. She thinks she's losing Vernon to Joy. She sees this family that seems to be perfect, that loves one another, and she doesn't have that. So there's a, there's a narrative there. Mary Charles claims that she and Vernon went to see a drive-in movie on the night of the murders. At the time of the murder, Mary told police that they stayed for both movies because she, they were both questioned around that time since they lived so close. Yeah, because they were in the neighborhood. Yeah. But the ticket collector, who apparently knew the two, said they left after the first movie. Vernon told police something different. And then their stories would change a few times later on. In the 1987 video of Mary Charles, she would say that she and Virgin, ugh, not Virgin, she and she would say that she and Vernon were not sexually active at the time. But in a 2016 interview with Vernon, he would claim that they went to a lover's lane after the movie. His story about the his movements that night have changed the most over the years. And he seems to add new details to his story every couple decades. Little sus, little sus. Vernon would also claim that they saw a car that night with its high beams on, moving slowly down the street like it was looking for something. What's interesting is that that tidbit is mentioned by Mary Charles in her 1987 interview. Many speculate that there was, in fact, a car but perhaps they were more worried about this car having witnesses, having witnessed them in the area, rather than the car being full of, I don't know. The car is weird because Vernon goes on in 2016 to add more to that story, saying that people actually got out of the car to like and looked in their windows, and then furthers that up later, saying that they actually tried to open their car doors to try and get in and then that they had said something about them not being the the person that they were looking for and then leaving he just seems to keep adding to this car narrative as the years go on and this is 50 60 years later that he's adding stuff that he's remembering more things about this car yeah but i don't know if that's a like i'm constructing a narrative i'm definitely not the person who murdered these people or a if I keep coming up with stuff, they'll keep coming back to interview me, and I like the attention kind of thing. Yeah, that's the issue that, that you see in multiple cases where people just want attention so they'll make things up, or they'll, or they'll just say, like, I have evidence and spin a story, which just wastes police time, which is great. We love seeing that. Vernon did say around the time of the murders that after Mary Charles dropped him off at home around 11, he put on a movie. However, a witness to that night would place him on the streets when the sirens started going off around the crime scene, possibly him trying to witness the crime scene that he'd created. He's also changed the story around that a few times. Like, he's had talked about earlier events earlier in that night in such detail, adding more details over the years, but... After he supposedly was dropped home by Mary Charles, he says, well, I don't really remember what happened then. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Mm. 
This interview is all this interview with Mary was all kinds of crazy. At one point she offers the theory that despite Vernon's fractured relationship with his father, he was trying to commit the perfect murder with the Sims as some sick means of either impressing or competing with his father. She offers this to police, which seems to be like her trying to be like, it might have been him, but I don't want to say that I was involved, but it was him. Very interesting. Very weird. The interview concludes when Mary basically asks police what they would do with her if she were to confess. Some believe Sheriff Campbell was too honest here in telling her that she'd likely go to a mental hospital because after that she stopped telling them anything that's clearly not what she wanted. But when you're in the middle of the interview, it's kind of hard to determine what kind of technique is going to work to keep this conversation moving. So maybe he thought if he told her she'd go to the mental hospital versus jail, she might tell them more. Yeah, it might seem like a safer option and make it seem safer to admit something. Although, it's a gamble to play. I do not envy people who have to interview. Yeah. I don't envy them because that is a skill that I would not be able to. Police also would say that Mary Charles was very intelligent, so she likely would not have accepted a like, you know, nothing will happen to you. Like, she's smart enough to know that that's not going to happen. But also dumb enough to walk into the place. Like, it's very weird. Very weird. Very strange. And here's the thing about Mary Charles' whole story. She and Vernon got divorced in 1986. The year before her interview with police. And her alimony had apparently run out by 1987. As part of their divorce agreement, according to Vernon... He gave her some of their assets and a fixed alimony amount, which he believes ran out around this time. Some, including Vernon, claim that she gave this interview in an attempt to make him look bad to the court so she could appeal for an extended alimony. This alimony would be rejected by a judge. So she did file for an extended alimony. Vernon denies any involvement in the murders. He denies even being in the house. when the Sims were alive. He says somebody else moved in that house and then invited him and his mother for supper later and that then he was in the house and then he goes on to say like, after I was in the house I thought to myself, nobody who hasn't been in the house would know how to navigate this. It seems like a very weird detail to include if you were not the murderer and were not very, very hard trying to prove that you don't, you weren't in the house that night but you might know how the house looks now. Interesting. It sounds like someone who doesn't know what they want their story to be. Uh, uh, my mommy and I were at dinner. We totally could have done it. We don't even live there anymore. Mo- it's just mommy and me at a dinner. It's like, really? Really? And the thing about this theory is that while it feels like the strongest out of all of the ones we've talked about, right. it is all circumstantial. Mm. And almost all of it is from Mary Charles herself, who is clearly biased. I think regardless of the truth of Mary's statements, she was clearly using this interview as a weapon against her now ex-husband. But the question is, is it the truth or a lie? Yeah, considering that she was doing a lot of maybe. Yeah, without any evidence for any of these suspects or people, it is, there's no way to tell. (laughs) It is suspicious that they keep spinning different stories, but also it sounds like they are in or at the time, we're in a very 
kind of messy divorce and crazy things were happening and they might have been doing it for alternative reasons. And the thing is, their stories conflicted even back in 1966 when they were initially inter- initially interviewed as witnesses. So you like, there's some evidence there of like True. there was a little bit of flip flopping yeah. even all the way back then. She seemed to have this obsession with death. He had daddy issues. I guess you could point to that. That's true. That's true. I kind of forgot the timeline. Doesn't that, too. well. Never mind. I was going to say, who doesn't have daddy issues in this town? And it was like, Joy and the rest of her siblings. Good for them, though. Good for their family being, like, a good one. I was worried they were going to be, like, the weird straights, too. But, uh, that's so sad. Well, I mean, hmm. Norma Jean and Judith probably have daddy issues now, but they're the dead daddy issues kind. Very sad. Yeah, I was going to go, like, they got, da- they got daddy issues, but it's a lot different than whatever the hell is, like, Peggy's kids are going through. So, oh, my God. Welcome to Tallahassee. Probably out of the people (sighs) that you have discussed, just because their stories are so muddled, that has the most credence. All the other ones were more like town gossip and being close. (laughs) Yeah, essentially. Something that may give the Mary Charles and Vernon Fox theory a little more credence, however, is that in 2016, Leon County School Superintendent candidate Patricia Sunday came forward and claimed she knew who had killed the Sims. I don't know why you would wait so long to say anything, and of all times to do it while you're up for a superintendent, but okay. You do you. According to Sunday, when she was 19, Mary Charles LaJoy, whom she knew at the time, confided details of the murder to her. What's more, she also claimed that she told Sheriff Larry Campbell this over 30 years ago. Former assistant Leon County State Attorney Jeremy Mutz stated to news sources that they not only had enough information to name a suspect, but they had enough to make an arrest. Sunday believes that him pushing too hard for an arrest in the Sims murder is the reason he was fired. Hmm. Current Leon County Sheriff Mike Woods said he would not comment on the conversation Sunday had with Campbell, but invited her to come to the station and speak with him on the matter. Sunday said that she's been there many times and has had enough of being involved. Interesting. That is what happens when police don't cooperate with people who have information. (laughs) Could be. Also important to mention that state attorney Willie Meggs says that Jeremy Mutz was fired for inappropriate use of his position to gain information to write a book on the murders. Jeremy Mutz denies this, of course. Ooh, conflict of interest. Your gossip's not juicy. So there's a little bit of... Why why are you coming and telling everybody this if you're not going to talk to police about it? There's a little bit of... Are you pushing this because you believe in justice or because you want a book to get published? And that's kind of part of what's going on with this case as a whole is that there's so much of different people's agendas involved in this murder that is keeping it from actually being solved. Like Peggy, maybe she really believed her husband was involved or maybe she had her own agenda about getting him in jail and away from her. And 
mm-hmm. Mary Charles, maybe she was there. Maybe she and Vernon did kill the Sims, or maybe she was going to use anything against her ex-husband to get more alimony. So that's what I have for you. I think the Mary Mary and Vernon theory is probably the most likely outside of just, there's also the possibility that just a random person was in town for the football game and the fair and just killed them because. Which happens, which is very unfortunate. And that makes it really hard to get people. I think a lot of, unfortunately, unsolved cases are just that, that some fucked up individual decided that, you know, this is what I'm going to do today, which is horrific. I'm going to pen that into my personal planner. My to-do list is to kill a happy family. These guys. And what's weird about this case is that, like, or no, it's, it's not weird, I should say, but it's it's clearly the kind of case that would really benefit from a modern technology relook through. I don't know how much of evidence they've still kept over the last 60 years, but if they have anything... It could be great to see if they can get DNA off of it from our modern techniques. It's been solving a lot of things recently. It has. It has. There's been all kinds of stuff. The gun is probably gone. I'm I'm going to say safe bet they're probably not going to find that. Yeah. Maybe a mudlarker is going to find that in the bottom of one of the bayous. But I don't know if you can really get anything off of I don't know enough about what happens to a gun if it falls into a bayou or a swamp for 60 odd years. I don't know if you can even get anything off of that anymore ballistics wise. I can't imagine. But you never know. Maybe? I don't remember what like bayous are other than it's water and mud and dirt because I know that like swamps and bogs you can have stuff that are there for years and they're perfectly like fine kind of like the bog guy for example where they're just like oh my god it's a body he's from medieval times so it could just be buried or yeah stuff. the bog bodies is one thing that's true but i don't know how well metal would fare in terms of anything that could be used for evidence yeah, it might just you know? be very rusty at this point if they ever find it so they'll be like here's a weapon but will it be ever linked i don't know this is what buy you so i don't know anything about that was that a common handgun? Also the knife. What happened to the knife? I can't remember. They did not find the knife either. Uh, okay. It could have even... I don't think they found anything of it on it. It could have even yeah. been from the kitchen. I don't know. The A thirty eight handgun is pretty common as far as guns That's go. I mean, I, I think a twenty two is more common. But it's... You know, you're not going to be able to really rule a lot of people out. And it was the 60s, so I don't know how well they were doing in terms of documenting who had guns. True. And the knife, they probably washed it off in the master, oops, master bathroom, and then just put it somewhere. I don't know. That's a thought. They might have just washed the knife off and taken it with them, along with the gun. A thought I had is that two of the theories around motive cover Helen with, like, maybe she knew too much about pastor or maybe she somehow offended some random guy and then there's also maybe joy had attracted an unhealthy interest from one guy but there's not really any theories not any big ones that follow dr sims and i almost wonder 
because some sources put him as lying on the bedspread and other sources put him tied to a chair. And depending on which of those things is true, if they tied him to a chair and then the, the other two received the most injuries, maybe that was sort of torture for him to watch his family members be injured like that because he was taken out with a simple gunshot wound, which may be, take, may be trying to take out the biggest threat first as the attacker, but also could have been like, I've, I got what I wanted out of this guy. I'm just going to kill him and leave now. Yeah, yeah. People are messed up. And I also think that we should say, because we have talked a little bit mm. about mental health during this, is that we're not saying that people with mental illness are killers. That is not at all what we are saying. But we are saying that some of these people are exhibiting signs. Huh. Disclaimer. Of yeah. Some kind of mental Part two. Illness. Just want to make that abundantly clear. That's the thing about this is that they're like the reasons for just walking in the and killing a nice family yeah. are kind of small. Like there are a couple of like maybe slights, but there didn't see they didn't really seem to have enemies. So you're only kind of left with like this was a random attack, which does lead you to question like was this like in somebody else's mind did this mean somebody else mean something else so that they had a reason to do this that we don't understand like it's hard to see a reason for for a crime like this mm-hmm. and i just thought of this too like the the neighbors heard screams but no gunshots true and that would be kind of distinctive in a very empty neighborhood at the time because of the game yeah and i mean like how do you hear the screams but not the gunshots I don't know, maybe they used to silence her, but yeah. why? Neighbors might have like heard the screams and then the rest of them might have just gone to... Because it's a fair and a game, right? Yeah, but the fairgrounds were outside of town. Okay, yeah, so people were probably just like, oh, they were still there at the time, and then they left their homes and there's just no witnesses for the gunshots, which might be what happened, but I go, this is a lot. Mm. Because it's like, I'm assuming that if this is such, like, a huge event, everyone's going. And maybe the family's just doing something else at the time. They're just, like, maybe getting ready to go themselves. I don't know. There's no evidence of that. Uh, but... The thing is, like, like I said at the beginning of this, these events were known to leave streets bare. And it was also, like, the screams were heard around 1045. The game would have probably started at the latest, 8 o'clock. The game is mostly over by this point. So they're probably not going to the game. They could have, I think what what it was is that the neighbors had young children and couldn't find a babysitter, so they had to stay home with their kids. That Judith Ann was out babysitting for a family that had gone to the game, and depending on which source you mm-hmm. read, Norma Jean mm-hmm. might have also been at a house babysitting. It's kind of one of those things. Or she was at the game. Either way, she went home because either the family came home or... The game was near over, so she came home. Yeah, It's hard to say. Maybe they heard shots and thought it was maybe fireworks or something. I don't really know how one would celebrate a football game in the 60s. Or they, or they had something to muffle the weapon. Like or they had a silencer. But like, then, like, why would you wait until a night mm. when no one's going to be in, t- in the neighborhood, but then also an abundance of caution? 
Do you also use a silencer? Well, I mean, you, you, you're doing it so you have let witnesses to see you going into the house, but you still don't want to be heard by true. people. So it makes sense to use something. Very true. But yeah. I think the Mary Charles and the Vernon case makes the most sense because it maybe she, she clearly has an agenda when she walks in there, but she also just seems to be like, to know a lot about the case. It's very weird. It's hard to say. I was going to say that I feel like that's the strongest theory, and I kind of stand by that, but mostly because the other series have almost nothing. Exactly, yeah. And the only thing that makes me really lean towards it is mm. what you said before with the waffling when they were even first yeah. talked to about it when they were, like, teens. So, I mean, they could have been messing around doing something else that they weren't supposed to and that is why they were but it's literally the only mm -hmm. suspects yeah. that seem to have any kind of inkling that it would really be everyone else's well gossip and hearsay that might follow actually because nor uh mary charles said that they saw both movies and vernon would uh conflict with that but then he, in a 2016 interview, would say that they had actually gone to a lover's lane after the first movie. And maybe she didn't want to admit to that at the time because she was, I believe, still living at home. And I don't think that would have been kosher because her family, according to her, was already abusive. And it is the 60s. It's hard to say. You can kind of see it either way. Which is really disappointing because that probably means... Unless we get some kind of major DNA breakthrough or find the murder weapon, which I think is very unlikely at this point, the Sims case may remain unsolved. That felt like a BuzzFeed unsolved ending. It remains unsolved. It's really sad, and especially for surviving family members that they don't get any kind of answers. And some, the person that is just... I know Judith and Norma lost both parents and their baby sister in one night. I think they were taken in by family after that, but still. It's not like, in any case scenario, it's not like that would be... It, it, their lives were changed forever in a horrific way, and they lost people that they loved, and that is, unfortunately, something that happens. Could you imagine, like, you walk in home and you're like there's something wrong here and then you have like both of her both of her parents were still like just barely alive right or was it just one of them i forgot already um like that's so sad imagine you're like oh <laughs> both parents were alive but i think the dad was oh like very close to death yeah okay that's so sad like imagine like oh my god i have to help my family and then you call like the number that you know which is good but then they don't make it when they get there. That's so sad. And you're just like, oh, I have to, like... You almost had, like, <sighs> a little glimmer of hope that was ripped away. It reads, like, her entering the home reads like a horror movie because the house is empty, but the TV is on. There's coffee mugs on the table. The ashtray is full. Like, there's signs of life, but there's no one. And then she has to... I don't know how many rooms she searched before she found her family in the the master bedroom but look, that like to have to find looking for your family calling out probably and not hearing anything and then to find them in that state is just horrifying 
Well, this was an incredibly disappointing case, not only because so many sources conflicted with each other, but also because we'll probably never get a resolution to this. But who knows? We've gotten a lot of crazy unsolved cases getting people getting identified. The boy in the box is identified. That guy on that beach was identified. The lady of the dunes is identified. So maybe, maybe we'll get some answers out of this. But for now, I'm disappointed. And I hope you are too. Push in your chairs. Stack your plates. Put them in the sink. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.